1: What we are in on Earth, as humans, is a protracted struggle. That that just simply means that it's something that goes on over a long period of time. When I was young, I saw between 60 and 70 so much change. In 10 years, one decade. 1960 to 1970. 1970. In one decade, I saw going from segregation to openness. Signs telling you not here, only here, only them. All of that disappeared in 10 years. And when I was young, I actually thought that... It was on that work that took place in that decade. But there were some sustaining moments, perhaps from 1890 here in Mississippi up until 1960. Every day people woke up. Is this going to be today? But they, whether it was going to be today or not, People say, either consciously or unconsciously, I'm going to do what I can with what I have, where I am, in
2: order to make a better life and a fair deal. The voice you just heard is Frank Figures, a local activist in Jackson, Mississippi, now in his 70s. Frank's considered manner of speaking resonated deeply inside me. His is the voice I heard from many of my older male relatives when I was growing up. Their cadence, their word choice, the way they reflected on and survived history. His delivery was heavy with the wisdom he wanted to impart. There was a phrase Frank kept returning to one that clearly is at the core of his philosophy in all areas of his life. In doing some research, I discovered his wise words were borrowed from Theodore Roosevelt, who said, Do what you can with what you have where you are. Meeting Frank bridges a gap for me. His life spans the era when the communities we are exploring in this podcast were vibrant, sustaining places. He, like many others, carries forth the insights from that time to today. The memories, the laughter, the good times, looking back not with nostalgia, but with quiet pride. This is Driving the Green Book from Macmillan Podcasts, and I'm your host, Alvin Hall. Joining me on the road is producer Janae Woods-Weber. In Jackson, the black commercial center was Ferris Street. And in this episode, we'll talk to people about what it was like there. But this episode is really about every street in every black area that represented achievement and pride for black people. Jefferson Street in Nashville, 4th Avenue in Birmingham, Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, Lenox Avenue in New York City, Walnut Street in Louisville, Kentucky. Janae and I made our way to Farish Street and were surprised at how desolate it was. Yet on some of the buildings, there were plaques designating it as a historic district. So we decided to read what was on the plaques to get a sense of what the community had been like. This building was erected circa 1900 by Negro Masons. This property has been placed on the National Register of Historic Places, by its inclusion in the Ferris Street Historic District, August 1983. And then below that, there's a plaque that says, Businesses and Family Residences, 400 to 418 North Ferris Street, 1903 to
3: 1983. Look at all the different kinds of businesses that are here. There's Lambs Cafe, there's a home dining room. Look, there's a furniture company, a tailor shop,
2: Frosty Freeze Ice Cream Store.
3: 406 Upstairs Family Residences. Do you think that was a boarding house? It
2: must have been Doris Beautyrama.
3: (laughs) George and Emma Beasley. I guess maybe even families have their names on here, the names of their family homes.
2: And Frazier and Collins Funeral Home and Insurance Companies. And right across the street is the same business.
3: Still there. That's one of the few that are still in operation. One of the few. This area was one of the largest economically independent black districts in all of Mississippi. Yeah. 125 acres. Amazing,
2: amazing. For African Americans in Jackson and the surrounding areas, Farish Street was the connection to the best in entertainment, fashion, movies, new products, even though it was a segregated area. For the parents' generation, it represented the aspirations that were not possible for themselves but that they wanted for their children. People would come from the surrounding countryside, people like me, who were raised on farms. They came to Farish Street for its vibrancy, its prosperity, and its potential for progress thanks to the vision of black business owners community leaders, and the power of collective action in the face of institutionalized hatred. On Ferris Street, people dressed to the nines. They drove shiny cars, and they had money to spend on food and drink and live entertainment. Folks we spoke to said that just walking along Ferris Street whose buildings had been constructed by slaves, energized them. Being there alluded to the promise ahead, if they continued to work hard and to believe in their shared strength. When families came back south, they talked about their lives up north because they wanted to do two things, to share what they had achieved and to inspire those still there. They wanted to embody the north's possibilities. The businesses that populated Ferris Street were built for and patronized by the black community. Ferris Street was a place where people felt welcome, safe, and catered to. It was a refuge. Shoppers, visitors, and locals would mingle on Ferris Street as they patronized businesses like the Alamo Theater, the Booker T Theater, Trumpet Records, Shepherd's Kitchenette, Davis Salon, City Barbershop, Paris Cleaners and Palace Drugstore. On our walk, we met Tony Dennis, a third-generation shoe repair shop owner whose grandfather set up the business in 1935 in the very same location. Well, here we have a shoe shop. Hello. Hi, how, are how are you? Tony remembers Ferry Street at its height when he was a little boy. A time when the streets were so jam-packed with people you had to wait to get inside a business. Why not? We're here. Let's get a shoe shine. I'll get a shoe shine.
4: If you walked at that door, you would have to get in the street to go up there. There were so many people on the street. On the sidewalk. On the sidewalk. That's amazing. All the way down the sidewalk. Yes. Around the corner. Mm-hmm. Just that many people. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was just that if you ever left home, say you live 30 miles from here, your grandmama, somebody told you, I need you to go to Jackson to pay my bills. Yes. You know? And you come over to Jackson, take care of your grandmama's bills and stuff. Yep. And you get back home. All your friends said, laugh. what would you had yesterday? I had to go to Jackson to take care of my mama Bill. Did you go to Ferris Street? I said, no, I ain't get to Ferris Street. uh You ain't get to Ferris Street? You didn't go to Jackson. You went somewhere else. (laughs) You wouldn't come to Jackson and not come to Ferris Street. Yes, exactly.
2: Yeah. While Ferris Street was the heart of the black community, there were businesses located on streets nearby that were equally famous, like Summer's Hotel and the Edward Lee Hotel. Frank Figures remembers frequenting these places for nightlife. Well, it was not far from where we are now, on
1: Pearl Street. You know how they redo streets and things? It's the uh, Dr. Robert Smith Parkway now. Mm. So they took out two or three streets uh, that were going east, traveling east and west in order to make the parkway, but, but it was there.
3: What do you remember about the Summers Hotel?
1: Now, now, what I remember, two things more than anything else, was by the time I had gotten in college, it was known for a man named Jimmy King ran it. Now, if I remember right, Jimmy King was a musician, a high school band director or something like that. And at night, he run what they call a the subway lounge in the...
3: In the basement. In the
1: basement of it. So I remember in college going there. Uh, he, he was known for jazz. And then later, he, he expanded from jazz music to uh, blues and jazz.
3: What were those nights like?
1: So I always liked the nightlife, but my wife was a church person, and but her attachment to me kind of put her in the nightlife. So, so it wouldn't <laughs> in, in the nightlife.
3: <laughs> go 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 out to the nightclub on Saturday. Go uh-huh. to church on Sunday. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, so so the nightlife the, at that time really didn't begin until nine ten o'clock at night, and. You know, being a church person, so she could go to church on Sunday night, and then we steal it out in time to, to go to some, you know, to hear some music. But being a, a morning person, she is even now, after over forty years of marriage, a morning person. Uh, that means she early to go to bed at night, nine, ten o'clock. But to be with me, that sweet soul. Would put on shades and sit up in Summer's motel, and I'm bipping and bopping to the beat of the music, and she's sitting with these shades on high in her eyes, and she sleep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> when we return from the break. Frank shares more stories about his teen years spent on Ferry Street, hanging out with friends and spotting celebrities.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
2: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
2: We're back with Frank Figures, a local activist in Jackson, Mississippi, who is now in his 70s. Frank was holding a copy of the Green Book as we spoke with him. And as he flipped through the pages, his memory lit up with stories from his teen years and the nights he spent on the town. Edward Lee Hotel,
1: I had a much younger experience with it. It was on Church Street, so it's a vacant lot now. But between Farish and Mill Street on Church Street— which is a street that also goes east and west, and it was on the right side, about mm, middle ways down that lot. There, it may be a historical marker there. I don't know, but it was a, uh, it was less known for entertainment, but more known for restaurant and the hotel fact itself. Now. What I remember most when I was in the middle years, they call it middle school now, not far from the Edward Lee Hotel, was the George Washington Carver Library. Now, every week, the George Washington Carver Library did this book review, and some young person would be allowed to review a book and talk about it. So that was like a place to go. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to live in that neighborhood, but it would bring me to the neighborhood. So in 1961, I'm 11 years old, come to Jackson, the Supremes, the Miracles, the Contours, Martha and the Vandellas, and a couple of other groups. The Marvelettes. The Marvelettes. <laughs> uh, I knew it. Uh huh. The Marvelettes, that's right. Uh, they, they come to Jackson and they stay at the Edward Lee Hotel. So we got news of that. My, my partners, my guys, and instead of going to the library that particular evening, we go over to the Edward Lee Hotel and get these stars autographs. We went there and sat around there with, the, with them stars. And they would come from their rooms and eat. And they, that night, it was called a Starlight Review. And that night, they performed in this very building in the Masonic Temple.
2: One of the most amazing things about the Green Book is the confluence of people that it brought together. Artists who were on tour with residents for whom it was a special occasion to come to town and see the shows. The very artists that Frank went to see on stage at the Masonic Temple promoted their music across the U.S. Two of the best-known musical reviews to tour the country were created by Dick Clark and Motown Records. Fans would have used the Green Book to find out where in the Black communities to stay when these musicians came to town. Before we set out to drive the Green Book from Detroit, Janae and I met former Motown musician, arranger, and producer McKinley Jackson, who is now in his 70s.
3: You were very young when you started working with Motown, and you got the opportunity to go on tour. What was it like to leave Detroit for the first time and go see the world.
5: It was, uh, it was just some people might say mind blowing, but it was uh enlightening. It was um expansive to see in very ways, in many ways. Even the language, when I got down south and heard the Caucasians talk and heard the blacks talk and, and my correlation from England and the British coming over to how the Caucasians talk down there to how the blacks, things like that were interesting to me. And then to see the, the different uh, scenic routes in the country, the mountains, the blue skies without burnout homes and that type of thing. You know? And then to see some of the stuff where people lived on hills with shacks love, leaning to the side.
2: McKinley is typical of the first generation of African Americans whose parents participated in the Great Migration. This younger generation was not fully aware of the codes of the South or the depths of racism. For entertainers like McKinley, the first trip to the South was often eye-opening. What they mostly became aware of were all the behavioral codes throughout the South that clearly divided black people from white people. And even with their stardom, they would experience how these codes applied to them.
5: Now, on occasions we would be driving down the highway and some of the, the wagons would come by with hay on them and four or five white guys, or Caucasians, whatever they call. called. But uh, they would have rice bowls and shotguns and pointed at us on the bus. And then about 10 windows on the bus would come up and the two guns out of every window on the Motown trip because you had the Temptations, you had the Four Tops, you had the Spinners, and these are all Detroit guys, you know. That wasn't a big thing for them to produce guns. They, and they <laughs> produce guns and these guys would take off and take off and uh, we never had too much trouble. <laughs> How old were you? During Probably this about time. 16, 17. Did I mention earlier I dropped out of school to go to Motown to record? Well, Motown, as I said, is universal music, and we had more or less a universal acceptance, too. I mean, sure, there were incidents now and then, but for the most part, people loved, you know I mean? What was not to love about Martin and Mandela's and, and all the acts, Stevie Wonder, and that type of thing. Now, there was a time.
2: Listening to McKinley, it is not lost on me that while the music he and his fellow musicians played was universally accepted, their skin color was not. The fans' reactions to the music made them think and feel that the culture at large was embracing them fully. And then reality would strike.
5: We did have one occasion where in Florida, I believe, Frazier was the valet for the Four Tops. See, what we would do is while the... Temptation were on the stage. The Four Tops would watch for security and get dressed. And vice versa, while the uh, Four Tops were on the stage, the Temptations would be changing and watching guards. We didn't have any guards, actually. And somebody attacked Frazier and knocked him in his head. And um, that was very bad. And I understand he had a plate. And for, for many years, I'm not even sure if he's still uh, alive now, because this is a long time ago. This is... We're talking about um, 60, well, 64, 65. So I know most of the guys that I was in the group with have passed uh, in the band. It was a very good learning experience for me because, like school, in the back of the bus, I would sit with the guys and they would show me about arranging and how.
2: You know, this recollection shows that even moving north and raising their kids in northern cities, the reality that parents sought to protect them from would eventually catch up to them. While McKinley and his fellow travelers were using music to integrate the culture, there were people in cities across the South on the ground working to affirm their dignity, to ensure their prosperity, and to assert their full rights as Americans. Frank Figures helped us understand what this work was like on the ground in Jackson.
1: When I was young, in the uh, early 1960s, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, the big boys boys that were getting ready to finish high school or had just finished high school, became, uh well, began doing the work that Freedom Riders were coming to Jackson to do. Now, many people think that people from outside did a lot of stuff in Jackson, but I'm here to bear witness to the fact that it was a huge number of People on the inside of the state, they wasn't waiting for a piece of policy or a group to come in. They were taking matters in their own homes. So guys in my neighborhood were getting arrested for doing stuff that Freedom Riders were coming to Jackson to do. Some of them, one was right across the street from me. And the guys that were doing that became my heroes.
2: One Sunday, Frank was listening to a song and had an epiphany. He felt a rush of insight about how the words of a song captured the real meaning of what was occurring, not only in Jackson, but in every city, town, and neighborhood where the Green Book was being used. I came
1: out of a funeral service about three or four years ago. And that day I had two funeral services But when I got in the car and was headed to the next service, this song come on. This song was by Percy Mayfield. He wrote it and recorded it in 1951. The song was called, Please Send Me Someone to Love. love.
2: I know the song.
1: Now, and this song was played. Constantly. People loved it. And I could see. But coming out of that church, headed to the other church, I discovered the lyric to the song. It's a prayer, it has little to do with bumping and grinding in love as it does with conditions.
4: Show the world how. To get along Peace will enter When the hate is gone
1: So the struggle continues today. But people should realize you said wisdom that wake up every day, do what you can, with what you have, where you are, in order to bring about a better life and a fair deal for people.
2: Thank you so much. This has been a touching and brilliant summary of what brought about the Green Book, how we survived that period of time, and what we need to move forward. In every town and city we visited along our road trip, we found an area just like Ferris Street. Looking through the listings in the Green Book, it's clear this is true all across America. Each city gave rise to a place for Black people that had its own rhythms, distinctions, special hospitalities, and entertainment. One important distinction about Ferris Street that makes it so memorable is that many buildings along it had been built by and for the descendants of slaves as a place to be in community and be treated with dignity. These areas across the U.S. show us the good life that African Americans created for themselves during segregation. These were oases of freedom. In these places, Black-owned businesses thrived, people paraded, Entertainers performed, and people enjoyed the pleasures of gathering together to spend some of their hard-earned money and to have a good time with friends. Here, local leaders, ministers, and activists met away from the white gaze to strategize and plan upcoming campaigns and rallies. These spaces were vital, providing a refuge for undisturbed Black American life. Tony Dennis told us, If you didn't go to Farish Street, you didn't go to Jackson. When you visit today, you can still catch glimpses of the area's former glory and understand exactly what he meant. Driving the Green Book is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It is created, narrated, and produced by Alvin Hall and edited by Juleka Lantigua Williams. Sound design and original theme song by Cedric Wilson at Lantigua Williams and Co. Field production by Olo Wakemi, Aladasui. Janae Woods Weber is the associate producer with additional production support by Jasmine Faustino, Michelle Margulis, Morgan Ratner, Emily Miller and Becky Celestina. Kathy Doyle is the Macmillan Podcasts Vice President. Special thanks to Tony Dennis, Frank Figures, McKinley Jackson, and the other Jacksonians who shared their stories with us. Subscribe to Driving the Green Book on Apple Podcasts. While you're listening, you can also explore the road trip locations behind the show using our custom Apple Maps guide. Find a link to this experience, curated music playlists, details about my upcoming book, and more at drivingthegreenbook.com. If you'd like to share your own stories about the Green Book with us, email us at greenbook@macmillan.com. We would love to hear from you. Safe travels.